1914. For anyone whose memories of Irish life in Dublin days cover so wild a field as yours do, Mr. Coffey. The year 1914 seems to be an ideal focal point for memories. All the great figures of the literary revival, Yeats and Lady Gregory and Edward Martin and all those others, were still very much on the public eye. More and more people were hearing the names of Pierce and Connolly and Clark, of the men and women who were to prepare the country for an appeal to arms. And then there was the Great War, the first of the Great Wars, drawing nearer every day. Though we did not know it at the time, in that summer of 1914, one way of life was coming to a close. World War was no more than a few months of glorious summer away. But in June, there was as yet no thought of a major war. Indeed, the very idea was unthinkable. All the argument was about the Home Rule Bill, then passing through the British Parliament, and the resistance of the proposed bill by the Ulster Unionist Party and the Ulster Volunteers. But this resistance was largely discounted as bluff. It was to counter the activities of the Ulster Volunteers that the Irish Volunteers, with Ian McNeil at their head, were founded. <coughs> the, latter, the later development of the volunteer movement, under the influence of Pearson, Clark and Connolly, and the Supreme Council of the IRB, was yet to come. In 1914, the eyes of those of us who had joined the Volunteers at their inception were fixed on Ulster. The Ulster Volunteers had pulled off a spectacular gun running at Larne, which had given them great kudos. And it was felt that a counter-landing of arms for the Irish volunteers should be undertaken. This was, this, was, this was felt not only by Irishmen, but by a number of English liberals. And the whip-round was made among Irish nationalists like Mrs. Stockford Green and Erskine Childers, and liberals like Sir Alec Lawrence. Enough money was raised to buy 1,500 rifles of an old pattern, and Darrell Figgis was sent to Antwerp to buy them from a firm of armament dealers. It was planned to have a sensational landing in broad daylight at Hoth from Erskine Childers' yacht Asgard. Then the Asgard wasn't the only yacht engaged in the gun running. The Asgard was too small to take all the rifles, and it was decided to have a second landing at Kilcool by night. Conor O'Brien was to use his yacht, the Kelpie, to bring the rifles to a rendezvous off the Welsh coast, where they were to be transferred to St Thomas Miles' yacht Ch Chota. Miles? used to sell, sail every weekend, and no suspic suspicion would be aroused by his sailing from the Irish, about the Irish Sea, while Conor O'Brien might well be suspected, as he was not given to weekend sailings in that sea. It was through Conor O'Brien that I came into it. He had difficulty in getting a crew, and though, uh, and though I was not a very competent sailor, I'd done a good deal of yachting, and had sailed with Conor O'Brien before. I met O'Brien in the United Arts Club and he asked me to go for a cruise. I was a briefless barrister, but thought I should not leave the law library in term time. However, O'Brien said he was going for ironmongery. I threw my business such as it was to the winds and agreed to meet him on Saturday, the 27th of June, at Foynes, where his yacht lay. <clears throat> at Foynes lived Lord Monteagle, whose daughter, Miss Mary Springrice, was one of Childers' crew. They started from a British port. We sailed from Fines on Monday, 29th of June. Kelpie was a catch of about 28 tons. Besides Conor O'Brien and his sister Kitty, there were aboard myself and two paid hands, George Kyle and Tom Fitzsimon. 
Our first rendezvous was at Cowes, where we had arranged to meet Childers. It was the least suspicious place for two yachts to meet. And when we arrived there a little before mid midnight on Friday, there was nothing to distinguish us from any other yacht going to the headquarters of yachting. Rendezvous at Cowes. You know, that seems to me to be the ideal way of starting a gun-running expedition without raising the slightest breath of suspicion. But everything wasn't quite as plain sailing as we had hoped. An accident to his hand delayed Childers, and eventually our final rendezvous to get the guns was postponed from the 10th to the 12th of July. The place arranged was near the Reutingen lightship off the mouth of the Scheld. It was mid-afternoon on the 12th in calm, misty weather, when we made our rendezvous and sighted a, a, a tug. As had been arranged, we hoisted a white jib while our other sails were, were red-barked. Kelpie from New York in ballast we hailed her, and from the tug came the answering hail in Irish. Darrell Figgis was aboard. He had sailed in the tug from the gladiator from Hamburg with the guns. He had told the captain that what he had aboard was merchandise for Mexico. And when he came aboard the Kelpie at our rendezvous, he warned us over and over again that on no account were we to mention either Ireland or guns. Taking the guns aboard the Kelpie was a strenuous job. The guns, which later became known as the hose rifles, were bolt-action rifles used by the Austrian army in the 1870s. They were long and heavy and packed in straw in bundles of tin, covered with sacking. As muzzles and butts protruded here and there, uh, our secret was scarcely a secret to anyone watching the transshipment. There were also boxes of ammunition, each of 1,000 rounds, and so heavy that except for one of the German sailors, no one was able to carry one single-handed. When I called on figures to give me a hand with the box I was trying to stow, I referred to it as ammunition. Once he, he took me up and whispered to me not to use that word. I pointed out to him that the box was enormous. Uh, the box had enormous red labels, announcing in German that they contained cartridges, explosives. For a moment, Figures was a little taken aback, but only for a moment. In an even lower voice, he whispered, still it's safer not to, to mention the word. Figures had a strong sense of the, of the dramatic. The bales of rifles took up an enormous amount of space. Although we had removed the saloon table and, uh, and jettisoned uh, the ballast, the saloon was soon several feet deep in rifles, leaving barely room to crawl over the bundles and nowhere at all to sit. By eight in the evening, we had finished the job. We took 60 bundles of rifles and several thousand rounds of ammunition, leaving 90 bundles for childers. Then, having swapped a bottle of whiskey with the captain of the tug for a, lo a loaf of black bread and some cigars, we set sail. And the tug, did she stay on to make rendezvous with your sister ship and the expedition? Just as we got away, we saw the Asgard, Childers Yacht, appear. We soon lost sight of her and of the tug. By this time, we were all so tired that we could hardly keep awake. At last, we decided to keep one man only on deck, to keep the Kelpie on our course and to see that we didn't run into anything in that crowded part of the sea. We drew lots for the first two-hour spell, and I lost. Keep awake during our passage through the streets of Dover, where there was a lot of traffic about, I hit on a plan. I laid the topsail spar beside the wheel and sat on it, so that whenever I fell asleep, I fell off and woke up. The trick worked, but I was so completely fagged out when this, my spell on deck came to an end, that I tumbled into my bunk 
and slept so heavily that I couldn't be wakened when we found ourselves sailing right through the British fleet. There were moments then when it seemed almost certain we should be held up and searched. But the British ships had other things to think about, about that night. Not till later did we realize we had sailed past the British fleet, preparing for war under the guise of holding a review at Spithead. The British Navy assembling for war. And right in the middle of the fleet, a tiny ship loaded to the gunnels with arms soon to be used in rebellion against Britain. Now that's the kind of situation a writer of stories would never dare to dream up. But even when you'd escaped from the lion's jaw, so to speak, you still couldn't make a direct dash for Ireland. Our final rendezvous was with, was with Sir Thomas Miles' yacht, the, the Chota. We were, to, we were to pick her up 20 miles west of Bardsey Island. We reached Bardsey on the morning of the 23rd. We hove to and later anchored in Tudrell's Roads, off the little seaside resort of Abbasock. We anchored somewhere out to discourage visitors and rowed ashore, where we found you were taken for Britain or onion sellers. We used to come to Wales in the summer. Our rendezvous was for Friday evening, and we set sail at 8 a.m. in a stiff breeze from the west. This died out to a flat calm, and by three o'clock we were still 18 miles from our rendezvous. The wind began to rise and soon was blowing very hard from the west. We eventually reached our destination on Saturday morning, but there was no sign of the chota. We hung about until breakfast time and then decided to run back to St. Tudrell's, as it was too rough for it to be possible to transfer the arms, even if the chota did turn up. We had an exciting run as we had to pass through the Bardsey Tide Race. As we came into the race, I noticed that some cartridge boxes which was stowed to leave a passage for the, to the forecastle while coming adrift. I went below to see what could be done and decided that the only thing to do was to prop my feet against one and my shoulders against the other to prevent them taking charge. As I looked up through the saloon skylight, I saw green water. This was rather alarming, but we were nearly through the race and in a few minutes we were in calm water. When we got to St. Tudrell's, we found that Miles had arrived there during the night he had split his mainsail in the storm and found it necessary to run to sh for shelter. He himself had gone up to Port Maddox to look for a sailmaker. The Chota was a much bigger boat than the Kelpie, with several cabins and a large saloon, so she would have no difficulty in taking the rifles. But with her split mainsail, Miles thought he could not get over to Kilcool in time for a landing as had been planned. <coughs> Accordingly, it was arranged that the landing should be postponed for a week, and that I should cross by the mailboat to report this to Owen MacNeil. The Kelpie and the Chota were to wait in St. Tudrell's and to take whatever opportunity there was to transship the arms. This was done late one night without being observed. Meantime, of course, the Ascard had picked up her cargo of rifles and was on her way to that historic landing in Hoth. And it was on Saturday, wasn't it, that you left your party in St. Tudwell's to bring MacNeil the news of the postponement of the Kilcoo landing. I went to Bangor by train and took a late train to Hollyhead. I did not see anyone I knew on the nearly deserted pier and went straight to a cabin before any of the main line trains came in and stayed in my cabin until all the other passengers had gone ashore. But a couple of days later, I was greeted by an acquaintance with the words, What were you doing at Hollyhead on Saturday night? When I reached Dublin, I found the streets full of volunteers who were being marched off to Hove. It was difficult to find MacNeil, but eventually I man managed to find him and give him the message about the change of plans. <clears throat> I had just time then to reach Hove, where my parents were staying for the summer, 
in time to see the escort sail in. I got through a call from the volunteers in the pier and had a few words with Childers to tell him what had happened to the Kelpie. The story of the landing of the arms and the shooting at Bachelor's Walk is too well known for me to repeat it. But I waited there until Childers sailed off, leaving behind him Miss Springrice and Mr. Gordon, whose real name was a mystery. They came to lunch with my parents and told us of their adventures. A week later, the arms from the Kelpie were landed at Kilcool. I was not there to see it, but was told that when the arms were put ashore, a mysterious fleet of taxis appeared and removed the rifles to an unknown destination. I sometimes think that Dubliners told as many stories about George Moore as Moore told about Dubliners in his well, uh, Hail and Farewell trilogy. I well remember T.W. Lister, librarian of the National Library, telling me a story about Miss Sarah Purser and George Moore. Lister and Miss Purser and Edward Martin were sharing a cab to go to a party at Dermot O'Brien's, who then lived in Mountjoy Square. Miss Purser was in high dudgeon with George Moore, whom she had recently had to dinner, and who had told her that the turkey which she gave him to eat was high. Don't you think that was a low thing to say to his hostess, she asked indignantly. A low way to behave? Well, said Edward Martin weightily, if you will entertain people like George Moore, you must expect that sort of thing. George is low, amusing but low, amusing but low. And so the cab rattled along to Mountjoy Square, with Miss Purcell repeating her grievance in varying forms of mounting indignation, and Martin echoing each complaint with the same solemn comment, amusing but low, amusing but low, amusing but low. No one in, <coughs> in Dublin uh, of those days would have been the least surprised to hear this tale about Moore. He was given to criticising openly his host's food and drink. One night he was dining with us. My mother asked him if he would have his coffee black or with milk. If the coffee is good, I like it black, said Moore. He took a, he took a sip from his cup, thought for a moment and said blandly, please give me some milk. My own first recollection of George Moore goes back to the days when I was one of the very young members of a fencing club which Count Markovich had helped us to, to found in a stable in Merion Row. One evening we had finished our fencing bouts early and spent the rest of the evening painting the word saved on the hall door of George Moore's house in Ely Place. It was our youthful double comment on the fact that Moore had just gone through the farce of being converted to the Church of Ireland and was also busily engaged in annoying his neighbours by painting his hall door green, when all the other doors in either place were painted white. He saw a good deal of Moore in those days, the days just before he published the first volume of his trilogy, Ave. He lived in either place and owned the garden on the opposite side of the street. I was at the performance in that garden of Douglas Hyde's Tinker, August and Sheog, with Hyde in the, as the tinker, when Moore's next door neighbours hired a, ma a man to sh 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 shout abuse out of the windows. I, can't, I cannot recall now whether Moore's childish quarrel with his neighbours originated in his painting his hall door green when all the others were painted white, but certainly the quarrel developed along lines just as silly. The neighbours had a number of small dogs which annoyed Moore by their barking, and they used to bribe a barrel organist to play outside Moore's house. It didn't help Moore in the least to call the police and to have the man prosecuted. His neighbour simply paid the fine, and the organist would be back again next week. 
I used to have a weekly evening for his men friends, to which George Russell, Bess, Gogarty, Yeats and others used to go. One night my father was the last to leave, and Moore said he would walk some of the way home with him. When they got outside, Moore said, Come with me, there's something I must do every night. He led my father down the lane, which ran at the back of his house. When they came to the back of the neighbor's house, Moore started rattling his walking stick along the railings and roused the dogs to shrill barking. He kept this up until the neighbors awoke and started shouting at the dogs to silence them. Moore waited quietly until silence was restored. Then he started off again, rattling his stick, until the dogs were roused again and, and fresh bedlam raised. Moore's malicious humor comes out in all its venom in, in his trilogy. We saw no, no more of him after the publication of Ave. My father was disgusted by the way in which Moore held up to public ridicule, people who had been kind and hospitable to him. This specially applied to T.P. Gill, at whose house Moore was a frequent diner, and on whom he invented much of his venom. My mother shared my father's disgust for Moore's treatment of his friends. She was walking down St. Stephen's Green one day, after the publication of Ave, when she saw, as she thought, George Moore coming to meet her. She'd never cut anyone in her life, but at that moment she simply could not bring herself to greet George Moore. She walked past him, coldly ignoring him, and realized too late that she had cut that gallant gentleman, Colonel Morris Moore, George's younger brother, who had a strong physical likeness to George, but resembled him in no, in no other way. The publication of Ave Salve and Vale cost Moore many friends, amongst them R.I. Best. Best was first and foremost a Celtic scholar. He had been as a young man in Paris with Singh and Stephen McKenna. There are many tales to tell of those days when, as he used to, to say, they lived on money borrowed from each other. And after his return to Ireland and appointment to the National Library, Best was in touch with the literary people in Dublin, especially with George Moore. When Moore's Ave appeared, Best was amongst its greatest admirers. But when my father showed his disgust at Moore's ridiculing of his friends, whom he owed so much kindness and hospitality, Best replied that the book was a work of art. Ah, yes, my father replied, but wait till the next volume appears and see what he says about you. And to this, my best answered, he would feel greatly honoured at any mention at all, no matter what Moore said of him. But when Salve appeared, it was a different tale to tell. For Moore had written the best, he skipped round Kunomaya like a little pet lamb. And the best was a beautiful young man with lovely fair hair. The many a maiden must have watched him from a casement window, and would have loved him, but that his mind was wholly occupied with the affixed particle. Best was furious. The vulgarity of it, the stupidity of it, he said, and the ignorance of it. It's not the affixed particle, it's the infixed pronoun. <laughs> In spite of the furore ca caused by the publication of Ave, Aquivale, George Moore was certainly added to the gaiety of Dublin during the years he spent there. Not a little of the, the gaiety, to be sure, was caused by Sol Susan Mitchell, whose witty life of George Moore spared Moore's feelings almost as little as he spared the feelings of the victims of his trilogy. Susan, whose wit and humour and shrewd observation lacked the downright malice of so much of Moore's writings, was assistant to A.E. in his editorship of the Irish Homestead, and shared with him the office in the top back room of the Plunkett House, the walls of which were decorated by A.E. himself with imaginative paintings of fairy gods and goddesses, and all manner of wonderful fairy beasts. <coughs> A.E. 
There were prominent figure in the literary life of Dublin and a friend of Yeats and Moore was in a curious way aloof from the literary groups. This was not because he isolated himself, very far from it. He was always accessible in the Plunkett House, where he edited the Irish Homestead and later the Irish Statesman, except just before the paper went to press. He was always ready to see anyone who, called, who came to him for advice or help. He was, of course, in the thick of the Irish literary revival, but by keeping aloof from the cliques and coteries, he never got involved in squabbles and jealousies. The literary mo <coughs> movement was very much rooted in the theatre, but A.E., as far as I know, wrote only one play, a play based on the legend of Deirdre. This play had quite a few performances. Moira Ma Hewley mentioned several of them in the early days of the National Theatre. Actually, the first performance was in our drawing room at Harker Terrace, where one act was given at a Christmas party in 1901. A.E. himself took the part of Nisha, and the other parts were filled by James Cousins, R.I. Best, and my father. The women's parts were Elizabeth Young as Deirdre, and her sister Ella as, as Levarkham. I have some faded photographs of the actors. According to Facebook, the first public performance of Deirdre was in 1902 in Clarendon Street. My only earliest member, memory of A.E. Is, is as a child going with my mother to the accounting office of Pins in South Great George Street and of talking to him there while he was a junior clerk. He was for some years employed by Pins. Somehow Horace Plunkett got to hear of him and of his interest in cooperation. He went to Pins and asked if they could spare this young man. It was a request that simply ast astounded the manager of Pins. He would hardly believe his ears on hearing with the from no less a person than Horace Plunkett, that one of the most junior, junior clerks on his staff was a person of distinction. <clears throat> Harker Terrace in those days was a very life group of, group of houses. Inside us at number five, there was at number ten, Thomas Lister of the National Library. Next to him at number eleven lived Miss Sarah Persa. Almost at the corner, in four earls for place, lived Standish O'Grady, and later Douglas Hyde came to live at number one. Miss Persa was one of the outstanding personalities of Dublin even then. She lived with her mother, a very formidable old lady of great character. Old Mrs. Persa was a person of whom I was in considerable awe, though both she and Miss Persa were kind to children, and they used to give children's parties for their nephews and nieces, to which I was invited from a very early age. And Mrs. Persa had, like her daughter, a sharp tongue and ready wit. Karen Osborne, brother of Walter Osborne, the painter, told me that one night at dinner, with the purser, a rice pudding and one baked apple appeared. Mrs. Purser asked Canon Osborne whether he would have what he would have, and he, knowing perfectly well that the apple was from Mrs. Purser, said he would like some apple. Mrs. Purser, without hesitation, replied, I only know of one occasion when an apple was divided between the sexes, and the result was most unfortunate. I will have the apple. I once referred to this incident while talking to Miss Purser, but she did not like being reminded of it. Mrs. Purser died when I was still a child, so my personal memories of her are unfortunately rather vague. My earliest memory of Miss Purser is of sitting for my portrait in crayon life-size life at the age of about three. I was in great awe of the artist, but found it very hard to stand still. Miss Purser, however, made me do so by a mixture of fear and bribery. I got a sweet if I stayed still for a stated time. It painted me in oils as a 21st birthday present, and by that time I was better able to appreciate her witty and pungent conversation. She was one of my mother's best friends, and they met almost daily, yet they always kept a certain formality in their relationship. 
They never called each other by their Christian names, but it was always Mrs. Coffey and Miss Purser. I never heard anyone except a relation call Miss Purser by her Christian name. I'm still slightly shocked when I hear people referring to her as anything but, but Miss Purser. No one took liberties with her. One person who did not seem to be in any awe of her was Douglas Hyde. I remember seeing sitting on the floor at a party of Mr. Lister's and at her feet and patting her on the knee. But he was a man whom nobody could reprove. We were sorry when she left Arcotos for Mistral House, but it was not far off and we still saw a great deal of her. Miss Purser had made a large fortune partly by her painting, for she became a leading portrait painter, and partly by shrewd investments. I met her once in a high state of indignation. She told me she had found that her bank was charging too much interest on her overdraft. When she challenged her bank manager with this, he said, we always charge ladies a higher rate. This person turned on him and rent him. Do you suppose, she said, that I am such a fool as to think you lend money to Miss Sarah Purser? You lend money to the owner of so many Guinness shares and you don't care what sex the owner is. The manager retreated in disorder. It's a foolish man who tried to cross swords with Miss Purser. George Moore used to say that when he wanted to say anything sharp to Miss Purser, he used to wait for an opportunity when she was surrounded by other people to make his mark over somebody else's shoulder and run away. As if, he, as if he stayed for a second, she would demolish him with a devastating retort. Sometimes looking back at the Dublin after the turn of the century, one recalls a city of great talkers, of gay and lively conversationalists. Sometimes the memory is of great individual giants of the past. Sometimes of groups and gatherings who met to talk, to argue, to debate and to dispute. <coughs> One memory which springs to mind whenever I think of, the, of those days is my parents telling me of the group of young Trinity men, my father amongst them, who started the Dublin University Review. T.W. Rolston was the editor, and his had as contributors Douglas Hyde, Stanley O'Grady, John Todd Hunter, and others of the Irish Literary Group. Rolston had to give up the editorship on account of publishing a translation of a Latin poem, which was regarded as scandalous. My father was appointed editor for a short time. It was during his editorship that he became friends with W.B. Yeats, whose Island of Statutes was first published in the, in the Review in, 19, in 1885. And this friendship remained up till my father's death. Indeed, it lasted longer. The Yates was always friendly to me and asked me to visit Friday evenings, to which, unfortunately, I was seldom, seldom able to go, as I had a weekly meeting with Dr Dixon and George Gavin Duffy on Fridays to talk Irish. <clears throat> and my father, from the first time he read a poem by Yeats, had the greatest admiration for his work, but at the same time was amused by Yeats's posing. Yeats, like Tennyson, even as a very young man, used to dress in rather conspicuous clothes with a flowing tie. He was not very nimble-fingered and did not always succeed in giving his tie the necessary artistic negligence. My father was exceptionally good with his hands, and as he met Yeats, would stop him and tell him that his tie did not look right and would retire for him with a desired artistic look. This always seemed to happen in a crowded place, like the corner of Grafton Street, and Yeats would be torn in two between the embarrassment of having his tie tied in public and the knowledge that if it was, was so tied, he could be sure that it would be perfect for the rest of the day. 
as I have said, <coughs> my father's admiration for Yeats was, was profound. And Yeats took his shaft in good part. I think that he realised it was well to have some friend who was not always uh, adulatory. Years later, when, when Yeats spent much of his time at school with Lady Gregory, we used to stay with Edward Martin nearby. My father used to keep up his chaff. Yeats was known in the district as the fairy man of cool, and my father used to refer to this in fun in various ways, such as, was the fairy man of cool who never went to school and his spelling was the worst in the land, but the provost of the college hasn't half his wit or knowledge, though the things he writes we cannot understand. Yeats himself quite enjoyed the joke, but Lady Gregory did not like Yeats being chaffed in this way. One day he took my mother aside and said to her, Please ask Mr. Coffey not to chaff me before Edward Martin. Lady Gregory doesn't like it. My mother, though she had a keen sense of humour, was so much impressed by Yeats' manner that she did not see anything funny in this and solemnly repeated it to my father with, with disastrous results. The chaffing was redoubled. I don't think Lady Gregory ever quite forgave my father. Lady Gregory was a striking personality, formidable to a child like me, but very kindly. I remember an afternoon at cool when she arranged for me to shoot clay pigeons, and another when the younger members of the party played donkey polo on the herd of donkeys provided by her. All the same, I was in considerable awe of her and of Yeats, though my admiration for Yeats was kindled during a picnic on the lake when I discovered that he was an expert at sailing model boats. Edward Martin was an intimate friend of ours who often came to our house and with whom we used to stay at Tulara near Gort. Martin was one of the most interesting figures of his period in Ireland. A many-sided man, he was first and foremost a religious Catholic, next and closely linked with this, with his love for music, and particularly liturgical music. His taste was shown by his endowment of the choir in Marlborough Street, Pro Cathedral, an endowment which carried the stipulation the choir's choice of music must be limited to early church music, especially that of Palestrina. He had a deep appreciation of Ibsen, and the plays he wrote show how strongly he was influenced as a dramatist by Ibsen. He did not greatly admire Shaw, and once told me that he thought Oscar Wilde a much better playwright. He was also interested in painting. He bought a number of French Impressionist pictures, which are now in the National Gallery. <coughs> A friend of Martin who did not share his love of French painting was John Sweetman. Martin and Sweetman were very close friends, were amongst the earliest members of Sinn Féin. Martin's connection with Sinn Féin was when it was a policy of passive resistance. The writing of 1916 was a very great shock to him. <coughs> During one of my visits to Tulara, <coughs> Sweetman was a guest. He lacked charm, unlike other members of the Sweetman family I have known. He appeared as a gruff, practical man, hard to see as an idealistic Sinn Féinar. He had a large estate in Meath where he had big herds of cattle. During the controversy over the Gallery of Modern Paintings, which Hugh Lane was founding, he expressed contempt for Lane and his works. Sweetman was of the company in Miss Purser's house one evening when the talk, talk turned on the pictures, which Lane had given the gallery. They were said to be worth £100,000. Why all this fuss about Lane, said Sweetman in his gruff fashion? After all, he's only a picture dealer, just as I am a cattle dealer. Quite so, said Miss Purser. When you give a hundred thousand pounds worth of cattle to the nation, we shall admire you too. <coughs> Among the figures one sees in memory, when looking back to, to those years, 
Perhaps the greatest was that of Douglas Hyde. Douglas Hyde was an old friend of my parents. When he was appointed to a professorship in University College Dublin, he became a near neighbour. He lived at Ratra, near French Park in County Roscommon, but took a house at number one Earlsford Place, just opposite the end of Harker Terrace. Here he entertained a great deal, and his dinner parties were among the pleasantest in Dublin. Mrs Hyde was a generous hostess, a mordant wit, which might have been intimidating but for her kindly nature. I often visited the Hydes at French Park and in Dublin, <coughs> and especially when I was writing a short biography of him, which was published in, in Mansell's Contemporary Irishman series. Often when I visited him I found him sitting in an armchair by the fire, with a parrot to which he was devoted, perched on a rug on his knee. The bird was not fond of anyone but a Hyde, but would tolerate Mrs Hyde. Visitors had to keep at a distance, while the bird stroked Hyde's face with its beak and made affectionate little noises. Hyde took great interest in the biography and would go through his scrapbooks and press clipping books, helping, helping me to find items of interest, while the parrot thought of it that I did not come too close to her master. Other great figures loom out of the memory of the past, a memory of John O'Leary, is of his reply to the person who said that Ireland would give O'Leary a magnificent public funeral. Nothing in life would bore me more than a public funeral, he retorted. But the retort did not make any difference when the time came, and Ireland did give him one of the largest public funerals in Dublin's history. <coughs> O'Leary was a familiar and commanding figure at meetings of the Contemporary Club, a club founded in the 1880s by a group of young Trinity men for the discussion of Irish political questions. Originally, a unionist and a nationalist were elected simultaneously, but most of the unionists dropped out, so that it became the predominantly nationalist club. <coughs> Much good talk could be heard at the Contemporary Club, but it wasn't the only gathering of good talkers in Dublin. There was the Ladies' Literary Society, of which the most prominent members were the sisters of Stockford Brook. There were Dante Societies and Browning Societies, and so forth. The most important was the National Literary Society. This had a large membership of people of different sorts and conditions, that is, own Hallands and Stephen's Green. The president was Dr. Sigerson, a medical doctor of eminence, who had studied under Charcot in Paris. He was also a scholar and a poet with strong nationalist feelings. He was a distinguished-looking man with long white hair and a short white beard, and the manners of a French aristocrat. He used to entertain at his house in Clare Street where the conversation was about Irish or French literature and history. The atmosphere was French, rather formal, smoking strictly forbidden. He had a collection of old writing desks, one said to have belonged to Napoleon and to have been carried by him on his campaigns. As a child I remember being greatly impressed when Dr. Sigerson showed me some secret drawers which many of the, of the cases had. Under his guidance, the National Literary Society maintained a high standard of discussion, but it is through the Irish dramatic movement that it has its chief claim to fame. Yeats and Edward Martin were both members, and thought that the society could be used in connection with the Irish theatre, which they wanted to found. The society was glad to help them, and the committee was appointed to deal with the matter. The committee, which met on January 16, 1899, consisted of Dr. Sigerson, W. A. Henderson, Secretary of the National Literary Society, W. B. Yeats, Edward Martin and Mrs. George Coffey. Martin guaranteed any expenses involved. It was decided to produce the Countess Kathleen and the Heather Field in the ancient concert rooms, and out of this grew the Irish Literary Theatre and its successors. 
I was only a child, so my mem memories are slight. I remember that our house was turned into a workshop for making properties and dresses. I also remember hearing talk of the attack made on the Countess Kathleen on the grounds of supposed blasphemy. And I remember the first night with this feeling of anxiety, but fear of a riot. My parents were brave enough to allow a small boy to go to the performance, but all passed off peacefully. The next performance in February 1900 was more ambitious. The Gaiety Theatre was taken, and again the play by Martin, Maeve, and The Bending of the Bow, an adaptation of Martin's play, The Tale of a Town. The adaptation was by Yeats and Moore. I do not think it was an improvement on the original. In Maeve, there is a vision scene with a procession of angels, and I, with other schoolboys, were roped in for this, though we were not a very angelic lot. Miss Alice Milligan's one-act play, The Last Feast of the Fiona, was also produced. Alice Milligan, who was a young woman at this time, besides being the writer of one of the plays, was the most active helper in the production. She had a flair for making clothes for the stage out of any odds and ends of material. She seemed to dominate our house and made us all work like blacks. I, for one, was decidedly frightened of her and did what I, what I was told. Her strong northern accent seemed to lend force to her comments. In the following years, Alice Milligan produced many plays in different parts of Ireland. George Russell, speaking of her productions, told of how, when there were not enough, enough dresses to go round, he would improvise clothes that covered only one side of the actor, but to remember this side out with care. 